Hello and welcome to the Maluli Asset Podcast. This is your fill-in co-host, Casey Maluli. I'm joined here by Tom Maluli and Brendan Maluli. I'm not going to offer any fun facts or zip codes this week because I botched last week's, so I'm taking this week off. This is episode 359, and we're just going to jump right into it. We have a couple articles from the Wall Street Journal this week, three articles to be exact. The first one we're going to talk about, which I know we also did a recent video on something similar, is about portfolio rebalancing and how it is a good retirement habit. The video we talked about was about some of the indices that are going through their annual rebalance. We talked about the Russell 2000, but the Russell 1000, the Russell 3000 are also about to go through their annual rebalance in a couple of weeks here. So as a general strategy, rebalancing is taking money from the winners of the portfolio and reallocating them to the losers of the portfolio. So what is the idea behind that and why is that a good strategy for investing? I think it's important to clarify when we talk about rebalancing that we're talking broadly in the sense of like asset classes or um, even within asset classes like uh, equities, like stocks, like small caps versus large caps and not like individual stocks like, hey, I own Apple and I'm taking money from Apple to buy GE. Because I'm not sure that that is like a sensible strategy, like taking money from winning individual names to throw into losing individual names because the variance is so great and we don't know necessarily where things are going over the long term. But when we're talking about things like stocks and bonds at a high level, I think it's unfair to even consider bonds a losing investment in in a good market uh, environment because that's you didn't you didn't own them in the first place to keep up with the stocks. So so really what you're doing there is is making sure that your portfolio doesn't become riskier or less risky than you intended to intended it to be when when you set out on the course of of creating it in the first place. I think in the article they referred to a uh, Vanguard mix of funds that showed if you were 60/40 in a global in global funds at Vanguard five years ago and did not rebalance that you, that portfolio that was 60-40 five years ago is now 72% in stocks and 28% in bonds and cash. And that's, that's a good example of how these allocations can drift if you take your eye off the ball. So why is that a bad thing? We usually get to answer that question uh, around the time uh, when the market's falling apart. And so a year ago in the spring, in March and April, uh, we had clients who said, gee, like I've, I've seen the, the stock side of the portfolio go down, the bond side has gone up, gee, I wish we had more in bonds at the time. Well, you know, if, if the proper rebalancing had been going on all along, you probably would have been close to <clears throat> that allocation. And I would say, Brendan, maybe you'll agree that over the last year where we've seen the market do pretty well, that some of these allocations are starting to get near the bands, near Mm -hmm. the edge of the bands. Would you agree? Yeah. I think the question of why why would you bother rebalancing is is like such a bull market question. Because I think that over the long term, like if we're talking about the split between stocks and bonds, 
you will likely do better over the long term by not rebalancing because we expect that bonds will be a drag on on performance over the long term. But if we're not only concerned about performance, but also volatility and getting to the long term by surviving the short terms along the way. And then, having money. Right. Uh, especially, yeah, especially for people spending from their portfolios or close to even doing that. Um, the idea of rebalancing makes a ton of sense uh, just because it's it's risk management. Like we, we want to make sure that if we didn't intend to be 100% stocks that we remain at whatever level was comfortable and was a fit for the plan beforehand. So yeah, and the way that we handle that to kind of bring things back to where you, you left us there was, I mean, you set out with a portfolio and you want to make sure that it's staying close to that. Uh, some people like to say, hey, we're going to rebalance, you know, uh, same month every year or, or the same two months every year and set it that way. We, we prefer to just make sure the portfolio is remaining close to its targets we don't want to be overly sensitive but we we certainly want to take action when it when it's drifted significantly enough to move the needle for us so to speak and i think the article said like the idea that you just need to have an approach to that um versus nitpicking which one might be better than the other or you know the next the article mentions that studies have shown only small differences in returns from rebalancing monthly versus quarterly or annually or over as many as four years. So like you said, it doesn't really matter when you do it. You just kind of have to have a system in place. And I think the system is also, I'm using air quotes, client driven. A lot of times we'll go in and rebalance or change the allocation in a client's accounts because they've told us that their situation is changing. And so, okay, we need to get more aggressive or we need to get more conservative because you're gonna be using cash as an example. You're gonna be making some withdrawals. And so while we're constantly monitoring what your exposure is, what your allocation is, sometimes the allocations come just because a client's called up and said, hey, I need to start taking money out of this account. Yeah, I know we've also gotten calls in the middle of a market downturn like we saw last year in in March and April, and all of a sudden they want to get more defensive. They want to go just using ballpark numbers. Let's say they're 80-20 and they call in and they want to go 60-40 or 50-50. So why is that a bad time to be doing that? Well, if you think about rebalancing, it's inherently counter-cyclical, which I think is to its benefit over time. Like you're being somewhat contrarian and saying like, hey, things have been good. Um, we're gonna sell some stocks and buy some bonds or, or vice versa. Things have been bad. We're gonna buy some stocks and sell some bonds. What you're talking about is is being pro-cyclical and assuming that what's happening today will happen in perpetuity in the future. And that's why we need to take action on it now. And I think that being pro-cyclical, while it may feel good and even be right in the short term is likely to look pretty stupid when when you stretch it even as far as a couple months or years out and i think you'll be kicking yourself over that sort of a decision right so so you'd be selling stocks when they're already down Mm -hmm. and going into bonds when they're already when they're already already up up, which is the opposite of what you what rebalancing is meant to be that's right which is usually the opposite yes you can so we talk about rebalancing between stocks and bonds but like I'm thinking of even, you know, within an asset class too, like within stocks, you can rebalance a portfolio in the sense that um, 
example that comes to mind is like last year, some of the things that we had been rebalancing back into over multiple years that had been laggards in the portfolio came came through in a big way in the second half of last year and the first half of this year now in in the sense of uh, small and mid cap companies, value stocks and international stocks, all these things that we had rebalanced back into that had lagged behind things like large cap growth and momentum and technology, you know, felt felt painful probably over the years to continue adding to these things that had lagged behind. And then lo and behold, they, they shoot ahead suddenly with without warning. And fortunately, we had been adding and rebalancing to those along the way while their prices were down. And so I think rebalancing within an asset class too is valuable because we just don't know when these know. things are gonna gonna start to move. Yeah. We don't and but we know that they all have positive expected returns. We expect them all to do what we what we need them to over the long term, but they're gonna take different paths to get there. So, you know, keeping the faith in all of them and, and adding to all of them when they've gone through tough stretches is probably better than doing like the opposite, like what you just alluded to. The opposite of that would be only adding to them after they've done well. Yeah. And when you put it that way, I think a lot of it, it hits home for a lot of people why you would want to do the reverse. So last year in July, August into September, we got a few inquiries. Why do we still own small cap stocks? The other investments that we have are doing much, much better. Why do we still own these dogs? And lo and behold, small caps had a good year in the fourth quarter last year. And that continued into this year. But the, the thing is, they produced a year of returns inside of three months. We stri- just don't know when this is going to happen. If you strip that that month, few months stretch out of their annualized one, three, five year numbers, I bet they would look like total crap. Like yeah. if you missed them and then tried to pile in after, like, oops, I missed it. Like, let's add them back to the portfolio. Yeah. Too late. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. I think me and Tim joke about something similar like that when we're playing golf. Where it's like, well, if I didn't have that three putt and that ball out of bounds and I didn't get a 10 on that hole, then, you know, I, my score would be pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. No. All right. We're, we're going to kind of shift gears here a little bit and talk about uh, tax exemption for home sellers. That is, the article says that it could be on the chopping block and the Biden administration's proposed changes to the tax laws would take a large bite from some sellers with the biggest gains. Maybe I get hung up on the language. As you guys know, I'm pretty dismissive of what the media writes. But under that headline in the Wall Street Journal, they had this, a tax exemption allows millions of Americans to skip taxes when they sell their homes at a profit. They're not skipping anything. They're they're entitled to that tax break. Isn't the tax break designed as as an incentive to get people right. to do something? Yeah, I've so just as like an overarching narrative, this may be a negotiating point over the next several months as they hash out potential tax law changes, but I'd bet against changes that take away incentives for people to own homes in this country because that is one of the most incentivized through taxes. Uh, one of the most incentivized things that we have in this country. There there are so many laws that are designed in the tax code to push people towards home ownership. And we can, we can debate some other time whether that's uh, actually a good thing or not. But so, so the idea that they would pull this sort of, this sort of incentive back, I think they're going to be, they're going to be hit with lobbyists from many different angles who would be opposed to this, not even considering just 
individuals and, and households who would not find this uh, this would not be popular amongst most homeowners. The one line in the article that was most surprising to me was that this $250,000 exemption for single filers and 500,000 for married couples was set in place 24 years ago and has not been budged at all. That number has been set in stone now for almost a quarter century. Mm-hmm. And think about what homes were worth in 1997 when this was put in place versus today. I mean, today I think is really an exceptional market. Exceptional meaning I don't think we'll see this again in the future for a long time at least. But homes are selling here in New Jersey very quickly often at ask price or well over ask price with multiple offers coming in and so this is a real this is a real concern because it's starting to people's gains in their homes are starting to bump up against these thresholds that haven't been indexed for inflation they haven't been raised in almost a quarter of a century it's a long time to go that that speaks to me that it hasn't been changed in 24 years because how many tax law changes have we seen in the last <laughs> in the last 25 years it's every two two to three, four years now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is staying this way for a reason. So just to clarify, the exemption that we're referring to is on the sale of a home. So yeah, pri- primary residence. Primary residence. Yeah, there was there was some good stuff in the article about people who want to play games with like their vacation home and right. like trying to meet the qualifications. And uh, I I would I would I would take a pass on anything more than the article in terms of information provides is is what I would be able to provide to a person because you got to speak to whoever signing off on your tax return if you're trying to play those games. Yeah, Wouldn't yeah. advise it. At a high level, it's up to $250,000 of profit from the sale of a home for single filers and 500000 for married filers. So let's say you buy your home for $300,000. You're selling it down the road and you sell it for $850,000. So your gain in that would, in that example would be $550,000. Right. But only 50,000 of that would be subject to capital gains tax. That's right. Which rates right now would put that at about 15 to 20% depending on the rest of your depending income. Depending on the yeah, rest of gonna your income. It's going to be a long-term income. capital gain, so right. But those rates could go up under the new Biden proposals. The highest rate, the headline rate is over 40%, but that only applies to people with an adjusted gross income of over a million dollars. It's not even clear if it's adjusted gross income, annual income, or everything. Mm. Uh, so some people are you know, very nervous yeah. because the sale of the house may be the biggest asset they've ever owned. That, that could thrust them into uh, an eye-popping tax bracket. Yeah. So the article mentions that in the first quarter of 2021, the median gain for U.S. home sellers was just over $70,000. Right. So we're not even bumping up onto the threshold of, of this exemption. But that's the median. Right. So it's not even the average it's the midpoint right Right. your mileage may vary but i mean yeah i mean in terms of who this impacts um obviously home prices in some parts of the country are a lot higher than others so yeah maybe around maybe around here the median number would be different like if state by state you could take a look at the median probably be different here but i'm i still don't know how many people would even in new jersey be really subject to this i would i would imagine the median for New Jersey, if we had those numbers, would still be below the thresholds for both individuals and 
married couples. Or and it's and and it's something that you can. It's not a one-time exclusion either. It's something right, that you can you, do it again. You can use it again in a couple of years yeah. Uh, yeah. down the road. Two, I get two years later. If right. You buy another house and move into it and live there for two years, and then you sell that one. Yeah. You just need to meet the requirements. I've heard. I mean, I've seen more just people trying to get ahead of these changes to the tax laws. So if someone were to come in and, and want to do something like that, which which direction would you steer them in? Man, if you're if you're talking about selling your primary residence and the, the most top of mind thing for you is getting ahead of proposed tax law changes, I think you're <laughs> clinically insane because this is going to be something we talk about every two or four years as power changes control in Washington. So I don't see... I don't see a reason for that to be your guiding, uh, guiding light. Yeah, guiding, guiding light in the North ter- Star. Right. So you're going to sell the home that you've lived in for at least two years and potentially longer than that because of this. There's got to be some other stuff on the table for this to be a worthwhile discussion. Uh, I'll, I'll default to the typical discussion we have when we're talking about buying a home for people. When you found the the dream home, it's going to be your primary residence going forward. Did you really care what the interest rate was on your mortgage? Yeah. No. I mean, it, it, it doesn't You're looking matter. at the hardwood floors. Exactly. So <laughs> looking at the view. Yeah, if you're driving your decision based on taxes, a tax proposal, proposal. Uh, it may not may or may not go through. Yeah, we need to get our priorities back in focus. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so it's something you you want to be you want to be aware of these changes, but uh, I mean Listen, if you're if you're selling your primary residence, I think this is this is down the list of considerations, and uh, I think that for most people, I, I think they brought up in the article too is that it's it doesn't just need to be your sale price less your purchase price. If you've right. accounted for, I guess so, repairs do not count, but but improvements do, and Correct. and they even mentioned in the article that like replacing your roof is an improvement as opposed to a repair, and so if you've kept track of all the things you've done over the years, which nobody does because it's more flattering to real estate investing, air quotes, to say, oh, I, I just sold my house for a million dollars and I bought it for 250000 back in the day. I made seven fifty on this thing. Uh, well, I mean, yes, in one sense, but in the other, like how much money did you put into repairs and improvements over the years because you use that to adjust your cost basis up, meaning your return is coming down yeah like um, are you counting the second floor addition that you put on like come on it's like big <laughs> so it's like the discrepancy between when you're having your home appraised versus assessed for taxes the tax assessment you want it to be like a, a shed that you yeah. live in basically yeah. but for the appraisal you need it to appraise for the purchase price so that you get your lending from the bank i would say this is the same thing in the sense that if you want your gain to look great on paper then yeah say here's the sales price and here's the purchase price and this is what I made on it. But if you're trying to uh, stay under these different exclusion thresholds, you're probably going to be looking for things that you can add into your basis to raise that up, which lowers your return on paper, but you want the lower return on paper when you're filing your taxes. So we play these games depending on what our goal is, which is just uh, human nature, but yeah, I got a chuckle out of it. A lot of good points in there, Brent. So the last article we wanted to talk about is titled How to Prepare for Student Loans to Resume in September. Since the pandemic started in March 2020, so about the last 15 months or so, folks with student loans haven't, federal student loans, haven't had to make payments. That looks like it's going to come to an end on September 30th. 
So still a couple months away, but the article suggests that people who are gonna have to make payments start thinking about it. If that money was going somewhere else, it's time to figure out how much money you can allocate to student loans while also doing the other things that you've needed to do with that money. For people who have been out of work, this has been a godsend. I mean, to, to not have to make payments for the last 12 or 14 months has been terrific. And secondly, this is a great opportunity to kind of hit the reset button and say, all right, I can use the calculators that they mentioned in the article and figure out how much do I actually owe and set a goal and say, hey, I want these loans done in four years, six years, eight years, whatever the number is, but you can get ahead of this now instead of saying I've got this bottomless pit of money, I never know when I'm going to be done. I think one opportunity that we have coming out of this pandemic is a, it's a great opportunity financially to hit the reset button and whether it's student loans or you know mortgages or any other kind of plan that you have whether it's a savings plan or a debt repayment plan it's a good opportunity now to be looking to figure out how to move forward with this yeah i would, I would definitely play with the numbers to juxtapose plan like if you said concretely like i'd like these to be gone in five years or two years or whatever the number is to play around with the numbers and the interest rate terms that you have to see what what those monthly uh, payments would shake out to if you have a goal in mind in terms of when you'd like to be out of debt or have that put in the rearview mirror um, to juxtapose that versus the minimum payments which which is you know the bare bones there is what is going to come back into force later this year so you're going to have to you're going to have to make your minimum payments as you were you know before but you don't have to only go back to the minimum i know that that's like an obvious thing but you can you can kind of you know take a look at your cash flow and say all right i could do the minimum and it's gonna take this many more years to have it uh done with or maybe there's some extra places i could pull from and if i made a payment that was a few hundred dollars more a month like how much how much uh interest and time at the end of the loan is that is that gonna save me and how do I feel about that trade-off between what, whatever else I'd be doing with the money? Yeah. Also, I have a couple months here until September to make some interest-free payments. Mm -hmm. If you make a payment now, there's no interest, so you're just paying down the principal. So maybe this is a good time to, like you said, play around with it, see how your month-to-month -month cash flow is doing one number. You can always adjust it moving forward. It doesn't have to be one number for the rest of the time. I know people's balance sheets in general from just information, I guess surveys and stuff we've seen over the last six to 12 months now, um, personal balance sheets across the country seemingly have improved on, on average. Obviously there are people who are hurting, which is why we have these sort of programs out there. But if your balance sheet is doing really well and maybe you weren't making the payments on your loan and we're just adding to a cash cushion because there was some uncertainty in your life about your, your job or, or, you know, whatever the case is, maybe take a look at that and say, hey, if I've got some excess above and beyond what I need to have at the bank to feel comfortable and secure in, in that emergency fund, maybe, maybe like Kay said, take a lump sum before uh, these things kick back in and, and start off that, that re-beginning of, uh, of the loan payments in Labor Day time period with, with one lump sum payment that knocks out a good portion of it. 
I think this would be a, a good opportunity to kind of revisit the whole idea about refinancing student loans. Yeah, it's, it's worth taking a look at. I think the article brought up some notable cons to ref, refinancing federal student loans into uh, private student loans, being that if you were uh, working towards some sort of forgiveness program, you know, the ones that are out there for, for federal student loans based on different fields that, that you can work in for periods of time or... or um, Income-based. Yeah, income-based repayment plans. If you've been on that sort of a track, then obviously something that you probably want to avoid. You want to stick with your federal loans, even even if the interest rates are not good compared to where they are today. You know, also back of back of mind for some people is the idea of student loans being, you know, forgiven in some capacity by the government. And if you're not doing federal student loans, and perhaps you miss out on that. But I, I do think that you need to weigh your options and consider. If you have good credit and and can get a lower interest rate, that that transforms that loan repayment on your balance sheet in a significant way. It, it might be worthwhile to to take that debt and refinance it to a lower rate and and tackle things that way. The article mentions you could also, if you have multiple federal loans, you don't have to refinance them all. You right. could just do if one has a higher interest rate and the other ones aren't so bad. You could just refinance that one loan into private loan so good point kind of hedge hedge your hedge your bets if yeah. uh, if you're waiting on loan forgiveness or, or one of these other things yeah well, i think that's gonna wrap up episode 359 of the maluli asset podcast guys thanks that was a good one a lot of good information in there and uh we're one away from doing a full 360 spin and we'll see you then tom maluli is an investment advisor representative with maluli asset management All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions in securities discussed in this podcast.